Welcome to the Everyday Story Podcast, where we explore how to read well, live well, and learn well. Join us today as we dive into the grand story of the Bible and how we can live faithfully in the drama of today. I'm Jack Clem. And I'm Ben Armstrong. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to the Everyday Story Podcast. Um, We're really excited to have a little bit of a hybrid episode today. It's been a little bit since we've had an episode and that is due mainly to the fact that I've had a sinus infection and I've loved all of our listeners enough (laughs) to not subject them uh, up to this point to my sinus infected voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm going to talk as little as possible today. And so we've incorporated Andrew into both of our segments today. So Andrew, I hope you have some... (laughs) really deep thoughts about so, not just the current events. Tune out now. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Now's your time. Yeah. Um, but basically we're going to kind of mesh our two segments together. Normally there's a little bit, uh, you know, of polarity or par- you know, parity between the two segments, but today they're going to be a little bit more joined and um, all of it's going to revolve around land. And so we're going to talk about the land in Joshua here in a little bit, but you, you don't really it's hard to forget the fact that Israel is a dominant topic because they're always in the news, right? And and especially even in like American politics, it's rare to go an election cycle without Israel coming up um, or without, you know, legislation about how America should do yeah. something with Israel. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on why that is? Uh, you know, kind of, kind of how, why is it so popular in in our news cycles and in our coverage that we hear? Mm-hmm. Politicians being asked, you know, what their stand or their position would be with the nation of Israel. What should we do? How should we support them? To what level should we support them? Then, of course, a lot more even in recent day, with greater sympathy for the Palestinian side of this, you know, ongoing conversation about land and resettlement, embassies. It's, uh, it can be bewildering, and it uh, can mess with our theology, too, a little bit. So that's kind of what we want to try to sort out today. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I think that um, the parallels between the rise of the nation of Israel, the modern state, and the, um, the rise of you know what we would call American evangelicalism are really interesting to just kind of see as two sides of, of the same coin. Um, they, they run pretty similar to each other. So I think that there's a just a historical reality that um, as the, you know, the Protestant church um, grew to some level of political power in the 20th century, um, it, it did so at the same time that, you know, the Jews, the Jewish people had returned home to the biblical land of Israel. And um, there, I think that there was probably, you know, not having lived in the forties myself, um, a certain level. We won't of... ask who was <laughs> currently on this podcast, yeah. but I can confirm it was neither Andrew nor I. Well, it wasn't me either. I wasn't living in the forties. Yeah. So. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I think there were, there was a, a spirit of, of, um, excitement even mm-hmm. of, of just kind of this, this new thing that was directly related to, um, you know, our, our story as Christians, the Bible. And, and I think that the, it just kind of raised a lot of people's levels of awareness about eschatology and about 
um, just the way that things were seeming to shape up at that time. You know, of course, you also had the rise of of other world empires. Um, you know, the the Soviet Union and communist China, and there was just a lot of global uh, upheaval that I think really seemed to a lot of people like seismic um, shifts or just kind of rumbles beneath the surface of, of some sort of eschatological happening. Um, but I also think that, you know, as we look at the timeline, I think American Christianity has, especially since the 1800s, been fueled by a lot of, um, shall we say, fringe movements. You know, we had a lot of... Um, around the time of the second great awakening, there were different groups that, you know, were saying Christ was going to return on this day and, you know, it didn't happen. And so it just kind of kept, got pushing back further and further, similar to, you know, the recording of this episode. But I think that since the, since the early 1800s, American Christianity has had this kind of infatuation with a sort of realized eschatology of things happening in our day. Um, and of course, you know, dispensationalism as we would identify it kind of comes onto the scene in that same time period. So you can imagine, I think the Schofield Reference Bible was first published in 1917. Does that sound right? 1909, somewhere in there. Um, so that was kind of like the first like uh, established in print. And of course it's the footnotes in a copy of the King James Bible. So it has like this air of authority. Um, but I think like as we kind of look back on some of those parallel tracks, we can see that, you know, the early 1900s and 1948 weren't really that far removed from one another. So right as there's a kind of this like establishment of dispensationalism uh, in American Christianity as like an acceptable way of thinking, way of interpreting scripture, like boom, all of a sudden the Jewish people are back in Israel. And so there's kind of this like, all right, here we go. Like we've got the blueprint and now things are happening. Um, and so that's kind of, I think, been the, the story getting us up to where we are now, you know, 70 years after that fact. Um, but a lot of those voices uh, coming from a, a more dispensational perspective um, became kind of the the loud voices in the moral majority type uh, political confluence of Christianity and uh, American politics. And so I think it became kind of this, uh, if you were one, you were the other in a lot of ways that we're seeing the, the effects of. But I think specifically in terms of this conversation, uh, being pro-Israel uh, became kind of the de facto position of American conservative Christianity, where if you were a conservative evangelical, you supported Israel, not just as a democratic nation, not just as a sovereign nation with a right to exist in a, in a land that historically belonged to them, but there was this very serious underpinning of, of biblical, if not moral um, justification for that. And so it just became this kind of weird confluence of people both holding to, to a support of Israel as a political position, but also a very um, theological one as well. Like the appropriation of, <clears throat> you know, promises given, like, you know, I'll bless those who bless you and right. curse those who curse you. Therefore, right. America must do this in planes. the 1980s. <laughs> or in the, right, like there was that. Yeah. 
that line drawn from right. biblical promise to action today. An alliance that is similar in some ways to that with our, you know, our other friends, but you know, our alliance with Great Britain is not seen in nearly the same kind of theological context as our alliance with Israel has been, even though, you know, by and large, our political support for, for those two nations would be largely on the same, in the same kind of categories. By the way, I fact-checked you and you not only got the right date that the Schofield Bible was published, 1909, but the date of its first revision, which was 1917. So <laughs> I was looking on Wikipedia before we started recording. So yeah, there you go. Full honesty. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Google and <laughs> Mrs. Wikipedia. That's right. Not citable for all of you That's right. paper writing yeah. people out there. Well, maybe what I could do is just sort of briefly frame kind of like the biblical... Um, foundation for the land. And then, then we can take it in terms of like how you've laid it out, Andrew, how it's been sort of then mixed with politics, interpret it, you know, then, you know, sort of framed within this blessing or curse kind of, uh, uh, you know, either or binary sort of situation, either you're for me or you're against me. And if you're against me, you're going to be judged. If you're for me, you'll be blessed or almost like a prosperity politics that uh, we begin to see emerge. So just real briefly, and the reason why we're into this is because the gift of land obviously is a major theme in the book of Joshua, one, one to nine, which we've gone, gone back to on several other episodes where we've been uh, unpacking our themes that run through the book of leadership, land, divine warrior, or warfare, and then law. And so in this land theme, which you see really in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2b through 4, um, it's one of the most significant gifts that the Lord gave the nation of Israel, and that was the gift of land. And the Old Testament, the Older Testament, makes much of this gift, and uh, so it demands our attention. So, you know, we go all the way back to Genesis 12, 15, 17, 24, 26. Those chapters all, you know, put land in the forefront, God promising to give Israel a place to dwell. And then we go into Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, and we see God leading Israel to this promised land. And constant reminders along the way, I will give you this land, thinking about Numbers 10, 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. So then we get to, we get to Joshua. Uh, God fought for this half-hearted Israel so they could enjoy the land to an extent. And, you know, right off from the, ba- the, right off from the beginning here, you know, we have um, boundaries that are not, um, you know, real specific, but, you know, get ready to possess the Jordan, you know, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them. Uh, I, then in one three, I have given you every place where your foot uh, will tread as I promised Moses. And that's really interesting in terms of the language because you see God saying, I will, and he uses a verbal form that communicates certainty in the mind of the speaker, almost like a prophetic, perfect kind of an idea. 
And um, although that's not the best category, but it, it, you know, best communicates, I think, the intention. And then other, you know, so there, it's, it's certain. God's, God's going to deliver on his promise, which I think is important. And of course, but yet there's a, there's a human contingent element in this covenantal arrangement. It's, you know, the Lord is guaranteeing it, but is also um, calling upon his people to be obedient. And so there's this sort of conditional, unconditional kind of function within this overall covenantal promise that God said, I will, I will give this land to you. And then, you know, verse four, uh, your territory will extend from, you know, and you have the boundaries, be strong and courageous, verse six. And then in verses one and two of chapter 14, Joshua and the high priest Eleazar distribute the land. Um, but then you have statements about um, how the Israelites did not drive out all of the people of the land. So you come all the way through the book of Joshua and the conquest is successful. It's dramatic, but it's incomplete. You know, so there's some anticipation of something more, something further yet to, to take place. And, and of course, you know, you go from Judges to Malachi and you see God always faithful, but ultimately bringing judgment upon his people because of their disobedience taking them out of the land, first to Assyria, then to Babylon, and then allows for returns, several of them, from um, Persian uh, domination and control. But yet still, the land is not fully occupied or realized. So, you know, land is a big deal in the Pentateuch, and it's fought for, it's occupied to an extent in Joshua through parts of Kings, it's lost in Kings and Chronicles. It's longed for in the Old Testament songbook of Psalms. It's enjoyed, once again, to an extent, in the Minor Prophets. And, um, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed Walter Brueggemann's attempt to organize the history of Israel around land. And, you know, basically his conclusion is that there is land which there are periods when Israel is landed, and then there are other periods when they're landless. So kind of a landed period of history versus a landless period of history. So I don't know, guys. I think, um, so, you know, how do we learn well, live well out of this? You know, I, I, you know my first, I'll throw my first thoughts into the mix here. But I've tried to, as I've read Joshua 1, 1 through 9, studied the whole land thing. One thing I I enjoy focusing on in the overall theme is God is the giver of this gift and then sort of unpacking that idea, you know, and it's not the be all and the end all. It's not the kaleidoscope of all the colors of it or the tapestry of it all, but it's, for me, it's one step into how can I enjoy this, this promise? Because, you know, from here out is where the, all the ink has been spilt and the print has been published. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different, <clears throat> viewpoints about what this looks like. But I think <clears throat> the first step that's really helpful is to, you just, I mean, really walked us through really helpfully, like a good overview of Israel and land. And I would just, I think personally, I'd probably point out and say like, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is really concerned about human beings living on land. Mm -hmm. From the creation story, there's this major emphasis on the garden, on what Adam and Eve are supposed to, like their mission, 
is to like it's it's earthy. <clears throat> Their mission is very earthy, and God's always been concerned with His people doing His work in a place. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we lose that in the New Covenant in the New Testament, I actually think it gets broader. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, you know, something we all talked about is that, you know, you know, the Israel promises with land are, are you know, sometimes really narrow and very mm-hmm. specific. And I think I would just urge, like even in the New Covenant, we see this concern with like the whole cosmos now, like mm-hmm. Jesus is going to reconcile the whole, all of creation to himself. Mm-hmm. All of creation is groaning. That's mm-hmm. bigger than, a particular geographical section of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think part of it can, can be like orienting ourselves because if all, we, if all we ever think about is, you know, God's promises with land are only to Israel only ever, mm-hmm. then I think we can end up in some really weird places applicationally, right? Like, mm-hmm. If that's the only promise or concern that God has about land, then like, yeah, we should defend whoever has that land Mm-hmm. you know, to the death. Yeah. Like, yeah, we, we should vote really differently. Yeah, we should do some really interesting things because mm-hmm. like, that would make sense. Yeah, but right. if there's something bigger, that doesn't mean we don't care about Israel or the Jewish people, mm-hmm. but is there something bigger to come? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, I think I, we were playing with the uh, sort of the, the picture or the the image of, or the, the metaphor, the analogy of a camera, you know, it's just like the aperture is opening wider and wider. So as you move out of the, the Old Testament into the New, and the New Testament doesn't make as much of an issue of land like it does in the, in the Older Testament. And so, you know, we have to think a little bit more broadly, okay, what's going on here? What does the Christ redemptive event mean for land and for creation, not just for you know one part of the creation you know uh, that uh, includes the Jordan River and Dead Sea and Galilee Sea you know mm-hmm. Sea of Galilee yeah. Andrew you've done some reading on all of this what are what are some of your thoughts about how do we how do we like responsibly draw the lines from you know the themes of land in Joshua particularly but the Old Testament the whole Bible how do we like live well today like how do we start to care or think differently about what's going on today because of that. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the, the first step is to realize our limitations, right? So um, all scripture is profitable for us. So even what Joshua or whoever is writing um, is describing is, is meant for us even in 21st century America. And I think meant for us in ways that are, deeper and more applicable than just which nation should be our allies or not. But I think, I think there's a, there's kind of a, a warning uh, in a sense by the, by the, um, the lack of clarity, I guess, um, if we can say that about some of these things in that I think we have to be careful not to project back too much our conclusions based on, um, other interpretations of scripture or our theological system, whichever that may be, um, to try to fit certain aspects of the biblical story into um, the way that we view things. I think that, that we need to be healthy enough to be okay with a little bit of mystery when it comes to certain things. And I think that we understand that uh, what God has 
revealed to us in his word uh, never contradicts contradicts itself um, and is always uh, for our good, for his glory. And so there's not gonna be a conclusion, an an interpretive conclusion to what God is saying here that is for uh, evil or that should be used as as a means to domineer or um, treat image bearers poorly or or do anything like that. Um, and I think that, I think we also just, I think the encouragement is that what God has shown us more clearly um, with a little bit more um, depth of understanding, I think can be u- used or useful in helping understand some of, some of these things. So that's a long answer to the short question is, uh, but even as we read a lot of the the ink that's been spilled, as Jack said about these things, I think we just have to kind of like pause a little bit and just and just realize that um, I think everybody's answers are incomplete in some in some way, and so it's really just about finding um, ones that are faithful to the clarity of Scripture, faithful to our conscience, but then also faithful to the way that we treat um, fellow believers, unbelievers. Um, other nations, that sort of thing. You did some. You did some reading, particularly on, like I think part of the misconception about a different a, a view on what the promises for land and Israel mean today. Besides what we've, you know, besides like literally advocating every single time for Israel to gain like world dominance, um, like part of the misconception is that like any alternative view is going to be like less physical than that view. And so like explain what counter views, like other options that may take a more like, you know, cosmos view of what, the fulfillment of those promises could mean, like explain how those are just as physical or just as material as, you know, the political nation state of Israel thriving as every country is blessed by God as we support them. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's some of the misconception, like you did some reading on that and I thought you had some really helpful thoughts. Yeah, so um, covenant theology, which unfortunately I think has kind of become the, the, antagonist of dispensationalism, which I think is unfortunate because I think that the conversations that can come from the dialogue between the two positions can, should be more helpful than than a hindrance, even in things like these. Um, but covenant theology, I think is gonna see uh, a much more realized fulfillment of Old Testament promises, even land promises, specifically in the incarnation and work of Christ and now in his ascended glorified reality um, as the, the ruler of an inaugurated um, almost, but not yet kind of kingdom. So I think that I would lean more that way um, simply because I just, I think that there's more continuity between old and new Testament than discontinuity. Um, but I think that- Can you explain those terms real quick yeah. uh, for all of the listeners that haven't gone um, to seminary or yeah. read extensively on the subject yet? Uh, I'll try. Um, I'm still learning a lot. Um, but anyway, um, so a perspective like dispensationalism, and, and Jack could probably provide some helpful clarity here, is gonna see um, more of a, of a disconnect in certain aspects between Old Testament and New Testament, specifically um, in how God is 
relating to and expecting um, behavior from the ethnic nation of Israel. So people who are both physical descendants of Abraham, but also those who would trace their identity back to the people who were called out from Egypt, covenanted to God at Sinai and possessed the land as we understand it in Joshua. Um, And then obviously that have continued to survive and thrive in the thousands of years since then. Yeah, Um, maybe I could just stop for one moment there. I think um, what, what really it comes down to is how do we read this covenant that was given to Israel. So, for example, just a writing step with what you've been saying, Andrew. So, our you know dispensationalism would read this covenant in a in sort of an unconditional way, and they would say that those unconditional promises were uh, given to the nation of Israel and will be fulfilled as stated. And the meaning of that should not change and is intended to communicate a certain fulfillment to this said group of people. Um, Whereas our covenant theology friends would read it, okay, well, we have a a covenant that is in keeping with ancient Near Eastern understanding is what we might call a suzerainty treaty. And the the issue in treaty is like, who's going to guarantee the covenant? And so, for example, in the suzerainty type treaty that was made between God and Abraham, God is the guarantor of this. And so um, now he's going to make it with Abraham and his descendants. And it might be that some of those descendants will fail along the way, but ultimately, as we read the New Testament, we'll see that there is the coming son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills it. And in a very similar way, if you compare that to the Davidic covenant with kings, you know, it's made with the tribe of Judah, with David and his descendants. And, um, you know, we have no problem with seeing disobedient Judean kings, Judah kings, come and go because we're looking forward to the, the coming Messiah, who would be King David, or uh, the greater than King David, the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And so, you know, it's a very similar way. We're going to have descendants of Abraham that will come and go, that will be obedient or disobedient, but the promise remains true. It's guaranteed by God. It will never be abrogated, but it will be fulfilled by a greater, a greater coming son of Abraham. Hmm. So, so back to what you were saying about yeah. uh, discontinuity and continuity uh, before I interrupted you asking for clarification. <laughs> okay. um, so I think you had, you had originally asked, um, does, does a, a less literal interpretation of a land promise lead to some sort of deficient or devalued view of the promise. Is that, am I recalling yeah, similar like, what you were saying? Yeah, you know, basically it, it seems like there are like two options. And I think in the minds of a lot of people, you've got one that's very physical and material and uh, tangible. Um, you can put a timeline to it. You can sketch it all out. Uh, it means very concrete, consequential action for today and how we relate to, you know, God's people, even though they aren't acting like God's people. Like, you know, there's very tangible, concrete things that you can say with certainty. And I think you know, the misconception is like option B, C, D, E, F. 
don't have any kind of material, physical reality to them. And you were doing some reading that I thought was really interesting that touched on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, one of the, the books that I was just perusing was a book by Michael Horton called People in Place. It's part of um, a series that he wrote probably 15 or 20 years ago, if not longer, um, kind of as a, of like a biblical theology of covenant theology, if you can say it that way, <laughs> um, but just touching on a lot of different aspects of it. Um, and so in one of his chapters in that book, which is, you know, as the title, as the title suggests about the place, the land, um, the, the consummated physical reality of what God has promised us. Um, you know, he talks about different elements um, such as, you know, Jesus's promises in the Sermon on the Mount where he says that the meek will inherit the earth. Um, Horton writes, it's not simply a slice of geopolitical territory, um, but a fulfillment of the, the promise made to Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, uh, that cannot be contained within the present boundaries of the earthly land. Um, the expectation is not that there will be no earth, but that the whole earth will be full of the glory of God. So I think as we, as we had discussed it, before we started recording, there's this idea that revelation is always moving from from more shadow to more substance and a more expansive view than a restrictive one. And so I think that even those who would say that promises, um, even the specific ones like the land, finding their fulfillment in Christ, it's not a narrowing of the perspective, but a, but a broadening of it, that it's a realization that as Christ has come, he's died, he's tore the veil, he's, he's ascended, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, um, that there's a, there's a step forward into the clarity of the, of the intended redemption of the world. And so him being the risen savior is an indication that God's control, redemptive control over the brokenness and fallenness of the world is, expanding and moving. So his power and his control and his um, lordship is increasing, not decreasing, not becoming um, more shadowy, but we're, we're seeing more clearly uh, what it is like to live in a world where Christ is king, uh, or at least where the kingdom has begun to come or has come and the gospel of it is going forth, which is, um, you know, that God is making all things new and that the brokenness that we see all around us is in itself the shadow that the light of the gospel is is overtaking and over overpowering, overthrowing. And now I think that um, with that perspective, I think you have to be cautious um, eschatologically to not veer into uh, an area that I don't think that any of us would agree with that we're, you know, as we advance the kingdom in our own efforts, um, you know, of obedience, evangelism, uh, nation building, uh, kind of a theonomy, like we need to make God's rule, the rule of the land kind of thing that once we do that satisfactorily enough, then Christ will return. Yeah, That's yeah. not what we're saying at yeah, all. We're not. That's an important point. Yeah, we're not, important. we're not building the kingdom here and waiting for Christ to come back right. and sit on the throne that we've established for him. We're, we're efforting, uh, working towards um, 
a king and a kingdom that is coming of his own volition. Right. And when and he it, returns, um, you know, that that picture of him ruling with the rod of iron, it will will be realized in a, in a great and gracious way. Um, but that that's only something that his second return, his second coming uh, will bring. So yeah. no, that's really good. I think that's helpful. And I think that's where we're all kind of um, seeing this, like sort of this expansion, you know, so the Sermon on the Mount is what really starts us on that uh, trajectory or on that uh, sort of glide slope of understanding that we're moving out to the earth. And then we're thinking about, you know, what's it going to be like for us in this, you know, geographic, in this, what should we say? Space. In this space, there you go, uh, earthy space, uh, under King Jesus' rule. And, you know, I know this is a topic that you love to talk about, Ben, this whole idea of rest and rest in Jesus. And so, if nothing else, because land occupation in the Old Testament was connected to rest. You know, so when they had, when they entered the land, they would have rest. And, but we're seeing the New Testament takes us to a greater understanding of that rest uh, in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere. So that's your, that's your favorite topic. Well, it's becoming one of my favorite topics, yeah, I think, um, because I, you know, I grew up just not being really captivated personally by like heaven. Right. Like heaven seemed kind of less enjoyable than what I was doing here on earth. And it hasn't been until the last year or two, I think like even with COVID, with all of the lamenting, all of the, like just the division and the violence that we've seen and all of the stuff going on, um, <clears throat> like it's made me realize that uh, when you read through the Bible and you see all creations groaning, all things will be made one under Christ, like Christ is king over all. Um, like there's a greater, there, there's like a, you know, the now, but not yet, like <laughs> yep. right? uh, of, of the event of the, the life, death and burial, essentially like, you know, let me start over there. Like there is, sorry, I'm just, I've got my thoughts. I just got sidetracked. Uh, there is something like to the event of Jesus's death, resurrection, ascension, and his return that is like yet to be realized. Mm -hmm. And it involves not just saving people, but saving the entire earth, mm -hmm. the entire cosmos, like the entire cosmos we put under the reign and rule of Jesus. And then like what that actually looks like mm -hmm. is really fun to think about mm -hmm. because, you know, so much of our life now is spent alleviating the effects of the fall. Mm -hmm. So much creativity, so much energy, so much work, so much money, so much of our life is spent uh, undoing or at least trying to temper what we feel from sin. Mm -hmm. And thinking about none of that exists, we now get to just completely use all of that energy, all of that like work, all of that thought, all of that creativity into good things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we see glimpses of beauty. We see glimpses of just incredible creativity. We see glimpses of good that come about from human hands and human minds. And to just think like, what if it was always that way? Mm -hmm. Like what would life on earth be like with King Jesus here among us 
building cities and towns and mm-hmm. communities and villages of people that could just completely spend all of their effort on good. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's like so much more appealing yeah. than yeah. what we're at right now. And yeah. it's like, yeah, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Like yeah. that will be amazing. Right. That will be fantastic for me to not have to worry about miscommunicating anything ever again for me to be able to like communicate perfectly with my brothers and sisters and to not have division or relational tension or mm-hmm. like all of the things that we experience in this life. Like, yeah, like come redeem the cosmos, like King Jesus, yeah. come quickly. Yeah. You know, like that's that's exciting to me now. And I think that that's one of the things that as we um, kind of labor in this current cultural climate um, with all of its negatives, that are very public about the church at large, you know, abuse scandals, uh, sin, greed, uh, infighting, bitterness. Um, we have all these public stories of deconstruction, all of these, all of these sorts of uh, just inner turmoil in the church. Um, I think it's easy for us to kind of adopt this posture of defensiveness, or that like we need to kind of acquiesce to the the charges that are levied against the church at large um, and kind of this like sense of like embarrassment or apprehension, like that we're kind of holding our faith loosely or not too, too strongly as to offend. I think that there's an appropriateness in us um, reclaiming back a little bit of what you're describing, kind of the, the in, in, um, inherent goodness of the Christian faith, not just for the individual, but for culture, for society, for the world at large, that as we um, live in faith in pursuit of the king and kingdom, uh, all of society benefits. I think that one of the, one of the best, <laughs> one of the best defenses that I've ever read of all millennialism is the introduction to a book called Dominion by a British historian called uh, named Tom Holland, who also has a, a great podcast. But anyway, his his whole um, historical thesis basically says that there is no West as we know it without Christianity. So all that is good in the West are our moral ethic, our um, the benefits that that our industrialism and all of those sorts of things have brought uh, is inseparable from the 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 system of thought and more morality that the Christian faith has brought. And it's just a really interesting way of looking at history, um, not like through the like whitewashed Christian perspective, but just like objectively, um, we see that post-advent of Christ, post-incarnation, um, that the world has somewhat gotten better as we like get a taste of the world to come. And I think that that is hope-giving in a real sense, like as we labor and endure brokenness and endure sin and all of those things, um, the, the coming of Christ is, you know, what's the, the, the phrase in that old hymn, you know, foretaste of glory um, that we just like, we're laboring with just this like kind of mirage uh, shadow on the horizon. And we're just getting bits and pieces of a taste of it as we go, but it is good, yeah. like objectively good. Yeah. yeah, I think another part of this as well that um, I think uh, bodes 
better for us or that is more helpful to us is this whole idea of a care and a concern for all of the races. You know, not just the not just Israel versus Palestine, but you know, all people living in this you know cosmos ruled by King Jesus. Uh, and life is, you know, as you described it, Ben, and um, as, you know, as you anticipated, Andrew, but, you know, as we live it, it's going to be with, with all peoples, you know, and, you know, so those racial divides, and those racial tensions, those, those opinions and those biases that keep us separated and keep us in our, our quarters of the world are all going to be done away with. And so I think, um, so, so if I could, you know, I don't know, maybe this is a good time to wrap for this particular. Yeah, I was gonna, my favorite quote from N.T. Wright that's like rattling my brain right now is he, he talks about in his book on hope that um, the ultimate plan of God is not to take his people out of earth, but to come down to earth and make it good. Yeah. And I think like that principle, like just change it. Like it's just like so encouraging. Okay, like that's the end of our story. The end of our story is not that like we get like parachuted out of here, like like ejected out of Earth to go to someplace better. It's that Jesus actually comes back and he makes this place better, mm-hmm. makes it new. He makes the whole cosmos as it should be. Yeah. And like that, that is encouraging, and that changes how I live now because like I can enjoy things on Earth that are good. It's not a waste of time. It's not like, like there are a lot, there's a lot of good to enjoy and to, and to create and to be and to like recognize, to call out. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of evil that it's not wasteful to spend energy on doing. Like, I think there's a, like a kind of pessimism that can rise up if our eschatology isn't balanced, right? If our view of land isn't balanced, right? It's like, whatever, it's all just gonna burn. Right. Whatever, who cares? Mm-hmm. And then there's also like the evolution that like airy, like, like, oh, it's all getting better naturally. And like the answer is like, no, it doesn't get better on its own. It's getting better because Jesus is going to come back and make it better. Right. We're not going to make it better. Like we we need the king to come back and make it better. We can't make it good enough for him to come back. But we also don't need to think that like everything is just going to like hell in a handbasket because that's not our end. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus is our end. And like how the, the ascension of Jesus and his return like orients our expectation for like what life looks like now. And I think that's just so helpful, um, at least for- Well, and I think we get a picture of that even as we come upon Advent here in the next couple of weeks, um, you know, like the, I think if we look at the, the Old Testament as the, the, the interlude between what God began with the covenant with Abraham and even with Adam um, or the promise to Adam in the garden. Like we looked, there was 400 years of silence between uh, the last prophet and the coming of Christ. And I think that just like is a profound illustration of what you're saying. Like they were, you know, in in the land, so to speak, they had returned and had a temple and, um, but it wasn't, complete yet. It wasn't the realized hope that they had been promised. And and at the end of that 400 years, Christ came and inaugurated a new step in the revelation of redemption. And I think we're we're in that same kind of silent period now. Um, And the difference is again, back to that um, less shadow, more substance thing is that now uh, we're not just toiling in 400 years of silence, we have the word, we have the spirit, we have um, 
even more of a clear revelation of what is to come. So it just like we we have so much to hold on to, even as you're saying, um, things kind of seem to be shaken all around us and breaking more and more. Um, you know, we we have a great hope and you know a city that can't can't be shaken that is yet to come. Well, maybe in the spirit of the way that Dan Patrick likes to end his uh, <laughs> his daily uh, shows, it's like, okay, okay, Danettes, what did we learn today? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but I think I think there are three things that I would just mark that I, I think summarize where we've come, which I, I think at least I'm very encouraged by. Uh, you know, number one, and these Ben were were points that you you made. I just sort of took them and developed them a little bit more. But, you know, God gives land for humans to live in. So we see that from the very beginning. We didn't really talk about it. That would be a podcast in and of itself. But to look at Genesis 1 and 2 as temple, garden, nature of service, being holy, sacred service to the Lord of the garden. And so we have that to anticipate being uh, what it'll look like. The second thing I would say is we, we're, we're all seeing and appreciating sort of this opening of the lens, this global focus, this broader perspective. So we're not denying anything that, you know, the scriptures anticipate or promise about a place for Israel to be and dwell, but we're saying that that's just, that's just one, you know, more closed aperture look at the picture. And what we want to see is a, we want to see that full, you know, like, let's open this lens up. Let's see the panoramic view. And that's where we're enjoying the cosmos. And, and then finally, um, just seeing that God will make a land of rest for us to dwell with him together, you know? So I think those three things really, at least in my mind would mark, you know, what did I learn today? You know, all right, God gives us a place. God's place is global and God's place includes living and dwelling together with him. And those truths just <clears throat> can lead to all kinds of creativity, yeah. all kinds of imagination mm-hmm. for how we live well today. Yeah. And hopefully hopefully this you know, large conversation has hopefully given you a lot of things to think about. It's given us a lot of things to think about, obviously, and we might have another episode or two about this because it, it is just an, an, an ever widening topic, mm-hmm. but it does, affect how we live today. And so hopefully this will allow you to uh, live better, to live well as we read well and as we learn well from each other. And so, yeah, this is this has been a great episode. Thanks guys. Thanks for joining us today on the Everyday Story Podcast. If you'd like to know more about our podcast, check out our Instagram account at the Everyday Story Podcast. If you like what you've heard today, help us out and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. The Everyday Story Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. The Everyday Story Podcast is recorded, mixed, and mastered by Ben Armstrong. Original music for this podcast was composed and recorded by John Horton. Original graphics and design by Virginia Stroud. So join us next time as we continue discovering the beauty, joy, and complexity of living well in God's grand story.